0: Hello. And again, welcome to BitDepth. I'm Santiago Ramones. Across from me is Lucas Cantor. Hello. I'm very glad to have you. I, uh, I mean, I obviously did a little bit of research and stuff, but I also try not to do too much research because I also like want to be curious about you. And so, uh, I'm just very excited
1: because like, I want your job. (laughs) So who are you and what do you do? Well, I'm uh, like you, Santiago, I'm a composer. Um, I I think I'm just a little bit older than you. So you have my (laughs) job. That's exactly what it looks like. Um, (laughs) And I live in Los Angeles. I write music for film and television sometimes. I write music for concerts sometimes. Um, I play guitar and guitar-related instruments, uh, Mm -hmm. by which I mean basically anything with frets on, uh, on any number of things, also just for fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm also a, a writer. I'm working on a book. Um, my, I guess my greatest hit recently was that I finished Schubert's Unfinished Symphony with Artificial Intelligence, and that has led me to think a lot about the nature of cognition and the nature of art and how we make art, and that's what that's what my book is going to be about. So, so that's it. COVID is a great time to work on a book.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. All of those things are exactly up my alley. So... First of all, how did you first get started in music?
1: Well, I, um, let's see the, we can go way back to the very beginning. Sure. I was <laughs> trying to impress a girl in my middle school and there was a guitar somewhere and I thought I'd learn a song on the guitar and try to impress her. And it didn't really impress her, but I really enjoyed playing guitar. <laughs> so I started, I started late by most professional musician standards. I started playing when I was 14 and, I took lessons. I took it really seriously. I eventually went to music college where I studied jazz guitar. And I, in fact, hold a degree in jazz performance on the guitar, believe it or not. Um, And from there, I started, I moved to New York City, which is what you do when you want to play jazz professionally. And I was working as a waiter. And I just sort of met this guy that worked at NBC in the music department and liked me, we got along and he hired me and hired me to work with him on the Olympics in Salt Lake City. So I did, I worked on the Olympics in 2002. And I've worked on every Olympics with NBC since in their music department. And being involved in, in sports television at that level, gave me a completely different perspective on music, because sports TV uses a lot of music, obviously. And when I was working for NBC, I wasn't just working on the Olympics, I was working on their programming year round in the music department. And sometimes I would go on productions and be like a production assistant or a runner or something like that. And uh, I got to be in edit rooms with some of these producers. And I realized, you know, the music they're using, I I could make that. And I had access to a studio. So I started, a friend of mine and I, we would wake up uh, crazy early in the morning, like, you know, 5.30 in the morning to get to the studio by six. And we would try to make like a rock sports highlight track before everybody got in at nine. And we did that for a few months. And that album, like still gets used. It's not, (laughs) it's not music that's on my demo. I mean, it's like kind of like 90s jock rock, basically. But Mm. that's the sound of, you know, when you're listening to highlights from yesterday's game, that music is generally just a delivery mechanism for awesome drums. You know, what's happening around, it doesn't really matter that much. And so, uh, so yeah, so I, I... I did that, and that gave me a taste for writing music uh for for media and I am family friends with uh the the Menkins with Alan Menken um I went to school with his daughter middle school with his daughter um Anna who is a was a great songwriter also by the way and Alan you know I basically just asked him my, my parents were like, you should ask Alan and so i I asked him what I should do with my life. And he said, well, why don't you, two things, call my agent, um, whose name is Richard (laughs) Kraft, who is the biggest film music agent in the world. Um, And also I have a recording session. Why don't you fly out to LA and just see what our session in LA is like? And so I, so I called Richard Kraft and Richard is, maybe you'll have him on your podcast sometime, or maybe you'll cross paths (laughs) with him, or maybe you already have, but Richard is brilliant and incredibly successful and I like goes to bat for his clients harder than probably anyone in the world, Mm. but is also mercilessly honest. And (laughs) at the time that I was talking to him, I felt like I was doing pretty good in the world of music. And he basically, you know, he got me on the phone and he was like, you know, nobody's ever heard of you. You've never done anything that anyone cares about. So like, don't you know, my thing was, I'm worried about I do not want to leave New York, because I felt like I was established in New York. And um, Richard said, you're not established, no one's ever heard of you just move out here. And then you you can maybe have a career, possibly, if you come out here, if you stay in New York, you definitely won't. I don't know if that was true. But that's what he said. And so, so I moved out here, I went to the session for Tangled with Alan. And um, if you've ever been to an orchestral session for a major feature film with a 96-piece orchestra in the room, it's it's intense. I mean, it's amazing, and everybody there, it's like, it's kind of like what I would imagine being on a battleship is like, like everybody <laughs> yeah. has a job, and everybody knows their jobs so, so well that everything is run extremely efficiently. And um, the, uh, you know, I got there at, you know, right at the beginning, and at the downbeat, they played a cue, you know, it was just 1M1, whatever cue they were they started with. Uh, and it was this crazy orchestral action cue that this orchestra of 96 people ha- were just sight reading. And I I mean, I almost like stood up and clapped at the end of it. And I thought it was amazing. <laughs> and the thing that made me realize that I had so far to go was, first of all, I'd never heard music performed at that level. Like, I'd never been that close to music performed at that level, period. And After it was, after that cue was done, after take one was done, everybody in the room had notes. And, you know, Mm. I was like, that was perfect. But then someone was like, no, I heard a stage noise over here. And someone, you know, the orchestrator said, well, the violas really could come out a little bit more here. And so that's how I knew I had a lot to learn. And I I basically, Mm. before that session was over, I was like looking for apartments on Craigslist. (laughs) Nice. Before I moved to Los Angeles, I had heard that Hans Zimmer who was a composer I was vaguely aware of, you know, having, <laughs> as most people are, um, uh, that I heard that Hans Zimmer had a studio, like complex where he had all these younger composers working for him. And it was like a, you know, like a, like a factory of musicians. And I mean, that was what I heard. Someone told me that at a party. And uh, there <laughs> was, I guess there was internet, I, I could have looked this up, but I didn't. I just took that idea. And I thought, all right, that sounds like where I need to work. So hmm. I moved to Los Angeles. And I I didn't have an apartment. My friend who uh, has lived here f- for a while is a friend of mine since since high school um, had a boat and he let me live on his boat. So <laughs> I was living on a boat, I had like a little laptop studio set up on a boat. And, you know, the humidity is nice for the guitar. So it was fine. Um, and I thought, all right, I'll give myself a year to like, figure out how to get into this Hans Zimmer studio, which is called remote control. And it turns out I had like a friend of a friend who worked over there and was one of Hans's composers named Michael Levine. He was like a good friend of a good friend, but he and I had never met. And uh, he invited me to go have lunch there and just meet him and, you know, see the studio and all that stuff. So I went over and we got along really great. His current assistant was in the process of quitting Uh, So I started as an intern with him, I I basically just begged to be an intern. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, at the time that my internship was wrapping up, he was going to be looking for a new assistant, and he was starting a new show. So uh, I became after having worked in sports television, won an Emmy delivered a lot of music that ended up going on the air. I was an intern and then I became someone's assistant for like $10 an hour. Maybe it was $12 an hour, Mm. whatever minimum Mm. wage was, Um, which on the one hand sucked. On the other hand, it was, you know, a hundred hours a week. So it actually turned out to be pretty good money. (laughs) Um, And, uh, but the, but the point is that it was a complete career reset for me. um, And that was, I think I was 30, I turned 31 uh, that year. So I was definitely old to be an assistant, Um, but, you know, that's what you got to do when you're when you're changing careers. And uh, yeah, I worked for Michael for several years. He eventually left remote control and moved to a studio in Topanga. He actually took Junkie XL's house when Junkie moved to remote control. So they just kind of (laughs) switched studios. Uh, And that is the nicest studio I've ever had. It was on a mountain in Topanga overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Um, Yeah. And I started writing music with Michael and uh, then a friend of mine introduced me to someone at BMG who was working on trailers and I had never done a trailer, but they, you know, they sort of talked to me because we had a mutual friend and um, gave me like almost the same sort of conversation that Richard Kraft had given me years ago. He basically said, yeah, I heard your stuff. I don't know. You're like, I don't know if you're right for trailers. I don't really know what to do with this. I'm just kind of talking to you because we have a mutual friend. If you want to like work on this and send me stuff, I'll I'll give you notes and like help you get better. But that's the best I can do. And you know, that was nice of him, honestly. Uh, So I said, Okay, sure. And that was on July second, And I think the next day, he called me up and said, Hey, so I have this project that it's, A spec demo for a movie, um, for a trailer for a movie. And none of my composers are available. They're all like gone for Fourth of July weekend. So if you can do this spec demo, I can pay you a little bit of money. And it's with this singer from New Zealand that we just signed. I think she's good. I don't know, whatever. We'll just do this cover with her. Um, And if you could sort of like you said you worked for a guy, maybe you guys could do it together so I could sell my boss's his credibility a little bit. And that's exactly what we did. So Michael and I did it together. And the singer from New Zealand that he was talking about turned out to be Lord. And mm-hmm. so we did this cover <laughs> of Everybody Wants to Rule the World with Lord, And it was good. I thought it came out great. She's phenomenal and amazing. And it didn't go for the movie that we originally wrote it for. They just, you know, they just didn't like it. And then "Lord," that fall blew up and won every Grammy and was touring the world, and, you know, didn't have a free second. And what she had done was the Hunger Games Catching Fire," I think, whatever the last one was, mm-hmm. um, had commissioned one of her songs, and then she performed it on a gig somewhere, and somebody videotaped it and put it on YouTube. And so then that song was no longer a world premiere and Hunger Games didn't want it on their soundtrack anymore but they loved Lord and they still wanted something from Lord and the only thing that Lord had recorded and finished and in the can was the track that Michael and I had done that everybody wants to rule the world cover luckily it really fit in to that to that film and the vibe of it was was right and everything but the entire the entire thing was just dumb luck and so after I did that I was people started taking my meetings and taking me a little bit more seriously, I moved out of Michael's studio and started working on my own. And uh, I've been, you know, sort of doing random composer gigs ever since. Awesome. (laughs) Uh,
0: So I guess I always like to do these, these comparison questions, but it's like, how does doing music for sports television network type stuff compare to doing music for... Film and television and all these different formats that definitely ask for different things of you.
1: Yeah, well, it's the same thing. Uh, It's the same job. You're just trying to tell a story and you're trying to help the people who are creating the visual media tell the story that they're trying to tell. And that's it. That's the job in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. So whether I'm, you know, I wouldn't necessarily choose distorted guitars to tell a love story for a Hallmark film. And I wouldn't choose harp and a small string ensemble to tell the story of highlights of a football game. So, yeah. the you know, you're talking about instrumentation differences and production differences, but ultimately all you're trying to do is give them something that will help tell the story they're trying to tell.
0: Yeah. How do you think that crossover for you from jazz performance into composer, I guess, how did that transition happen, but then also... How does that affect you, the way that you compose music
1: that's a that's a good question um, mm-hmm. Jazz musicians are all composers we just we we just compose really fast, so <laughs> the process of um you know making up melodies on the fly is that's composing we call it improvising, but what it is is composing music um with an ensemble together in real time so for me, composing music for uh, for someone else and writing it out is, is actually, I mean, it it seems like you have this luxurious amount of time to figure stuff out because it's not happening in real time in the moment. (laughs) And it also frees you from, you know, jazz, you have to sort of come up with some tricks to navigate around, uh, the time constraints. At least I did. I'm, I'm not a, I'm by no means a, a master of like, you know, John Schofield level, but you know, I'm okay. I can play some standards. Um, (laughs) but The, uh, so the transition seemed very natural. There's, there's a lot to composing. And this is what I learned when I moved to Los Angeles. Uh, there's a lot to composing that is technical. And, um, it is, especially composing for film and television is as much of a craft as it is an art. And there's a lot to the craft that you have to learn in order to even just be able to get your music to sound, uh, professional and, um, make it like the minimum acceptable sonic standard for the marketplace. And that stuff and that's that stuff is no joke. That's that's a it takes years of training and then there are a lot of things about music and about film production that you have to learn uh that are necessary for deliver to deliver things that editors are going to be able to use, for example. So that that was the main thing I had to learn was the craft of film music, but the you know, how I transitioned from jazz to to composition, I didn't really view it as a transition, it was just sort of using the same skills in a different way, if that makes any sense. And jazz is, you know, jazz is just a way of understanding music. Um, it's not, th- th- people say, pe- people have asked me, um, you know, less experienced interviewers than yourself have asked me if I'm classically trained. and. Um, You know, I've said, well, I mean, you know, I've been in front of an orchestra and they've called me maestro. I don't know what else, you know, I don't know what what else you want to, they played my music and it was, you know, it was fine. Um, But no, I wasn't, I wasn't, I was jazz trained, which is just a different training, but it arrives, you arrive at the same, at the same uh, place. And the, the thing I had to learn, the thing I think I would have known had I been classically trained that I didn't know coming from jazz was just some of the language That you have to use in order to communicate quickly with musicians who play classical instruments. And that's important and you have to learn it because if you're sitting there trying to explain something to them for five minutes that there's just a word for that you don't know, that's a waste of everybody's time. Um, Yeah. So that was was basically the biggest difference. But as far as understanding how music works, how harmony works, I, I just understand it from a different perspective. And I think jazz musicians make good film composers. Um, yeah. And definitely. that's borne out by a lot of evidence.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess what are those – I guess what were the tools that you didn't have as a jazz musician going into composition? And what what were those things that you sort of realized that like, oh, I need to learn how to do this because I haven't done this yet?
1: Okay. So the the biggest skill that I did not learn in college that – is entirely my fault. And this information was available to me, but I did not take advantage of it. (laughs) Um, was I did not learn anything about production. Um, and the, the only, this has probably since changed, but the only thing that I would fault my program for is not forcing me to do it. Um, Mm. I, I really think they should have just forced me to do it. And if I'm being honest, it's possible that they did. And I just like, Sailed through the class <laughs> with minimum attention. That that's possible. Um, I, I also like. I definitely took a piano class in college. I took four semesters of piano. I can barely play the piano. So you know, it's uh, all I did in college was practice guitar. That was, you know, I mean, I stopped to breathe and eat occasionally. Um, but the production part of it was was what I had to learn when I when I wanted to work professionally because you know, it's, I mean, it's production for, for delivering music today. Production is the equivalent of literacy. I mean, you have to be able to deliver your music to an audience. And if you can play music, that's great, but that means you can only deliver your music to people that are standing in front of you. Um, so you have to be able to record it and you have to be able to record it to a minimum professional standard in order to get people to want to listen to it. So that was, uh, I was, I'm sort of an obstinate idiot sometimes. And I was very resistant to paying attention to that stuff, and to learning about that stuff, and to thinking that it was important. And it took moving to Los Angeles and basically getting a job where I was browbeaten with that kind of thing daily, in order for me to get good at it. And now it's, it seems it's, you know, it's kind of second nature to me now to produce something and make it sound nice and I mean, you know, all, all the things that musicians and producers do to make their music sound good. Mm-hmm. It's second nature to me to to do that. Like, I would never think of sending someone music that wasn't finished. But uh, I used to just say, like, well, they'll, they'll, you know, they'll hear what I'm going for. You know, I'll I'll just <laughs> play this guitar part, and you know, they'll they'll hear what I'm going for. And the I guess probably the best thing that I learned, and maybe one of the most valuable lessons I've learned, is that nobody nobody hears what you're going for. Like when you're Mm -hmm. giving them music, you have to give them the finished idea or they're not going to get it. And it's not because they're not creative or because they don't like you. It's because, you know, what seems obvious to you is just not obvious to someone else. And that's why you have to finish it. It's just like, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien didn't, you know, go to the pub and say, "All right, it's like this book about. There's these little guys called hobbits, and then there's these big guys, and they're from a the place with a bunch of fire. And there's like a ring, and this bad guy with the ring, and then the little guy with the ring, and he takes the ring to the other place. You know, you know that's. <laughs> and you guys will fill in the details, right? Like, you know, yeah. the details are. I the promise, story. it'll be really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just give me a bunch of money, and I promise it'll be amazing. <laughs> Um, but no, the, the, the it's my business is exactly the opposite. I have to give the client basically what they're going to buy before they even pay for it in some cases. Yeah. yeah.
0: What's sort of been your biggest challenge as of yet in your career?
1: My biggest challenge in my career? Uh, huh. That's a good question. I don't – I mean I'm tempted – so I'm trying to think of like an existential challenge that I had to overcome. <laughs> um, because the the challenges, I mean, to think about like a project that was challenging, you know, every project is challenging. So they're, you know, that's that's like saying, Have you ever had a job? <laughs> you know, every <laughs> yeah. every project I've ever had to do has had its own challenges. And um in my what has been my biggest challenge in my career? I and then the other thing is that like challenges that I've overcome don't seem like they were that hard in retrospect um Mm. I guess moving to Los Angeles was a big thing to do it was a um I, I mean I'd never lived more than you know 30 miles from where I was born and I had no contact or prospect out here and I was already like 30 so if I had you know if I spent five years screwing it up I'm in the middle of my career you know at that point so so that was um I, I guess that was a challenge. I mean, the it's hard to how do I how do I put this? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. hard. It's that's a hard question to answer. Man, you're a good interviewer. Mm. <laughs> uh,
0: maybe, although I do want to make sure that the questions are answerable. So,
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the- wait. I, I, okay, I haven't. I have an answer for you. The biggest challenge for me in my career was having to learn how film music is like having to learn, like I said, the trade of film music. That is an ongoing process. And like I said, um, like I mentioned, learning how to talk to musicians um, in a studio setting and learning how to operate um, all this equipment so flawlessly that you you don't need to think about it. Yeah. So that's, that's, uh, that's an ongoing challenge, but that's, it's kind of like the challenge that I mean music is a challenge. The whole thing is a challenge. It's, you know, I hear comedians say a lot that they've been doing stand up for, you know, however many 20 years and they don't feel like they're good at it. You know, and this is like like, you know, Dave T- Dave Chappelle says that, you know, that um <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel about music. Like it's a challenge every day. So there's not really a particular moment that I felt like, "Oh, this is a thing I need to get over in order to in order to be able to do this." It is just every Every day, there's a different challenge, and you just try to take them one at a time.
0: Yeah. So who were your biggest influences musically uh, whenever you were first starting, and then who are your biggest influences
1: now? Well, definitely when I was in high school, I'll tell you uh, something that most people don't know about me before you ask, which is I was Mm -hmm. super into jam bands and The Grateful Dead and uh, like, and Jimi Hendrix and that kind of stuff. And so those, that kind of music, those were huge influences on me um, earlier. And then the, you know, the album that changed my life was probably either Wes Montgomery's Boss Guitar or Relaxing with the Miles Davis Quintet. Those two records were given to me at the same time. And uh, they basically made me want to study jazz. I, I just like, I just changed the course of my life after listening to those <laughs> two records. Um, and so uh, I would say those were those were huge influences. And compositionally, one of the things that is amazing about Spotify is the ability to discover old music and the ability to sort of on command call up music that you had forgotten about. Um, and for me, this is, you know, when, when I was in college to date, my, I've already dated myself, but when I was in college... <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, I had a book of CDs. My my biggest expense was buying music and um, believe it or not, it believe it or not, kids, it used to be a thing for sale <laughs> that you had to pay for. People used to buy and, music. Yeah. I used to spend hundreds of dollars buying CDs and I would carry them around in a book because that was the only way to like have it readily accessible. Um, and so I, uh, yeah, I spent, I spent a lot of money and a lot of time. But now I can just sort of think of a CD that I used to have and, you know, find it online very easily and listen to it. And I was listening the other day to like, I have, I have this King Oliver, no, it was a Jelly Roll Morton, like it was like a Jelly Roll Morton greatest hits album or something. And Mm -hmm. just a, you know, just a record of his, you know, stuff from the twenties and thirties. And I listened to it the other day and I realized I have stolen so much from this record (laughs) Like I have, I mean, I listened to, when I first discovered it, I listened to it, you know, probably for a month straight and it just like got in my DNA. And I just, just listening to it for the first time in years, I realized, wow, like a lot of these tricks I use all the time. (laughs) And, um, so that kind of stuff was a big influence on me. I mean, I just, when I was in college, I listened to so much jazz and I listened to so many records over and over and over and over and over again. Um. Herbie Hancock, Headhunters, is another one that I think is a favorite for a lot of people. Uh, I'll give the uh, the listeners a a bit of a dark horse answer. There's a great album called Unity by Larry Young. Larry Young is mm-hmm. a keyboard player, like an organ player, Hammond player. And the album is um, Larry Young, Elvin Jones on the drums, and um, Joe Henderson and Lee Morgan. No bass. He's playing the bass mm-hmm. with his feet. And huh. it's so sick it's such a good record it's like (laughs) peak joe henderson peak lee morgan they're just like um on fire uh and it's a it's a great album so that that was that was a big one for me too um and uh monk i did like my whatever the equivalent of a thesis is for undergrad I, i did like i guess i played a lot of monk on my recital I used to do with my band, I I had a, you know, like a jazz quartet that played around a lot. And we used to do like a set of all Thelonious Monk tunes. And I just learned a lot of that stuff. And um, I don't know how much of a influence his music is on me today. I I don't know if you would hear that in my music, but uh, Mm. I I studied him a lot and I love, I love his stuff.
0: And then what what are you into now?
1: That's a good question. Um, I just last night, believe it or not, checked out this album called Bloom by uh, Santiago Ramones. It's uh, really cool. It's really interesting. Um, it's like a very cool minimalist record with guitars, which really speaks to me. And uh, <laughs> and I quite like it. Um, I'm not kidding. I checked out your record last night. I really liked it. I Thank added you. it to... I have a... Um, so to answer your question of what I'm into now, I'll tell you about the greatest <laughs> thing that I've ever done, that I recommend mm-hmm. everybody does. Um, and uh, everybody who has musician friends, you should definitely do this. But about a month ago, I just kind of, you know, I live in LA, all of my friends are musicians, all of them have records. And I thought, you know, we, we don't, it's like our job. And so we hang out together, but we don't actually listen to each other's music that often, um, Mm -hmm. unless we're working on it together. And so I thought, you know what, it's COVID. I got, you know, other than my daddy responsibilities, I didn't really have much going on at this particular time. And so I thought, I'm just going to listen to some of my friends' records. And the first one I listened to was, uh, and I keep saying records, but you know what I mean. But the first one I yeah. listened to was uh, an album called um, Beyond Images by a friend of mine named Jordan Siegel. And it's this jazz album. And it's just so amazing. Like it blew my mind how good it was. It's like the kind of jazz record that every jazz musician like in their, in their wildest dreams wants to make, it's got an orchestra on it. He plays beautifully on it. It's got these great arrangements and really cool tunes. And that got me thinking, you know, how many of my other friends have these, have great albums. And then I listened to a friend of mine named Kate Dunton and her and her, uh, Her and her husband, Jake Reed, are a drummer and pianist, and they have a trio with a bass player. Uh, It's called Trio Kate. And their record is like mind-blowingly good. They're amazing. And so I made a playlist on Spotify called Best of Friends, where I spent like a week going through all of my friends' music and picking out the stuff that I thought was, you know, the stuff that I liked. And uh, so it's on there. I I highly recommend everybody, like, you don't have to go listen to my playlist, but like do that for yourself because it will... Mm make you grateful for all the like amazing music that is happening around you. Um, You know, and even if you don't have friends who are musicians, just find musicians who are like local in your area, because there's someone who probably is throwing distance from you right now who is making incredible music. Um, Yeah. And so I added uh, one of your tracks to my best of friends playlist, by the way. Thank you. Uh, which yeah. one? Sure. <laughs> the the first one. Like the, so, the first one was I, I I listened to I listened to all of them, but the first one really kind of reminded me of stuff that I did when I was younger, like this like minimalist <laughs> guitar, um, repetitive <laughs> stuff, and it sounded like it was some of it was recorded direct and uh, and you know just playing with harmonies, and I I really I really dug it. So thank you. It's on there. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but but it's it's a great <laughs> thing to do to like listen to, um, in in artistic professions, I think people get really stuck into their own silos and also get into this competitive mindset, you know, um, where they, and, and it's really easy to just, you know, have the sort of worst part of your competitive nature come through, which forces you to not look at the other good stuff that's happening around you. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, I could mention any of my like colleagues and friends, like that we're, we're all in competition with each other, you know, but it's also like, it's also a friendly competition. I mean, like I've, I've lost jobs to friends of mine and then seen what they did with it and been very happy for them. You know, yeah. Um, I, I've never once had the experience of somebody taking a job that I was up for and thinking that I would have done a better job than them. I've never had that experience. I've always had the experience mm. of like, oh, the person who made that decision made the right decision every single time. Um, yeah. you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and these stories in Hollywood are uh, are endless. Of like, you know, uh, th- they originally had cast I don't remember who it was, but someone else other than Tom Hanks as Forrest Gump. You know, and sure. you know, just th- th- like these endless stories of like these things that could have happened, but you know what did happen ended up being perfect. So, so yeah, that's um. Yeah. So I, I don't even remember I don't remember what the question was the no, last year. It, yeah, it's
0: just <laughs> <laughs> stuff that you're into now, which is like good you're into your friend's music, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Um one last thing on the music front, uh, or I guess on this side of it, but what advice do you have for people who want to do what you're doing? That's
1: uh yeah, that's that's the big question. Um so <laughs> I have a lot of advice and it really depends on where you, where you're at. Um I think probably the most important advice that I can give uh generally and this doesn't apply to you Santiago because you obviously already have a studio there and you know <laughs> have you've already kind of committed to this lifestyle. Um but to younger people, especially younger people who feel like they want to be artists but don't come from artistic families and don't necessarily come from backgrounds where this kind of career is supported or even known about. Um, the thing I want to say to those folks is that you can make a lot of money being a musician and Mm. the top paid studio musician in Los Angeles probably makes about as much as the top paid doctor in Los Angeles. Um, Mm. you know, it is a regular steady job that you can get. And there are, um, and, and the, and the top, the top guys aren't even really relevant. There are a lot of people who make a lot of money playing music in Los Angeles that you've never heard of and New York and, you know, um, uh, Nashville and like all the sort of major music cities. Um, and there are a lot of jobs in music that aren't, you know, being Beyonce or being me or being, uh, you know, the first violinist for the New York Phil or the LA Phil. There are a lot of jobs like being a music supervisor, um, working in music services, generally being a copyist, being a, Uh, music editor, being a mixer, there are a lot of jobs in music that are professional jobs that you can get, you know, you can earn a living, buy a house and raise your family quite comfortably. And um, most people who aren't in the industry just don't know these jobs exist. And so you're uh, the people in your life system, if they are not professional artists, they're very rightly going to look out for you and say, well, you can't make a living doing this because only Beyonce makes a living writing music. But that's not true mm-hmm. beyonce ha employs probably hundreds of songwriters, all of whom have made a lot of money working with beyonce yeah. and um <laughs> and she's just one artist and there are also like for every beyonce, there are a hundred beyonces you've never heard of who do really really well and um so so yeah that that's my main piece of advice to young people. It's simply that this is a viable career path, and you should look at it that way and um. And there is, you know, there's as much of a guarantee of success in um, becoming a musician as there are as there is in doing anything. I mean, if you want to do a high-paying profession, you're going to have to go into debt and study for like ten years. You know, you can go to law school and then get a clerkship or whatever the um an, I don't remember what they call it, but or you be in a, yeah, you go to law school and then you become an associate at a law firm, like you're probably like, you've probably netted out your law school and college debt by the time you're done being an associate, but that period is about 10 years. And that's Mm -hmm. the same as being a musician, you know, you're, you're (laughs) probably not going to make a ton of money being a musician for 10 years. But the thing is, actually, you, you can start making money as a musician immediately, (laughs) you know, go out on a busy street corner and play the one song, you know, over and over again, and people will give you money. (laughs) Um, So, uh, so that's, that's one thing. And then for the sort of next uh, level of people who are uh aspiring professionals and have sort of chosen this path if you don't live in um you have to you have to go where the you have to go where the work is that 's the bottom line you know it's uh, th- this is getting less and less true but i don 't think in the like career trajectory of anyone who's trying to get into the business now this is ever going this is going to dissolve completely um which is you just have to be where the market is um and you know, and I say this is getting less and less true because obviously there's a lot of remote working going on. I mean, Santiago, you and I have never met <laughs> and are in different cities and you are currently in a city that I don't think I've ever even been to yet. Here we are. Um Yeah. <laughs> and so that's more possible than ever, but there is, um you know, there, there is, uh, there's a value to just being in the same city as, as people. And it's, you know, it's, a, it's a different type of networking. And, uh, and then the other, the other, um, thing is Los Angeles and New York and, uh, Nashville and London have like a lot of professional music infrastructure. You know, we have a lot of studios, we have a lot of, um, talent, uh, that can work at the studios and, you know, th- that's important. So you got to go where the work is. Um, you know, it's like, think of it as like being a, like a coal miner, You know, you have to go where the coal mine is. You can't just decide to be a coal (laughs) miner wherever you live um, because there might not be coal there.
0: Oh, man. The thing is, like, I have so many more musical things to discuss, but we'll do that on the second podcast uh, because now we have hard questions to answer. And this is what makes Bit. Oh, great. So to get to them, what is the role of
1: spirituality or religion in your life? There, There is, it, it doesn't have a role in my life. Mm. Um, I, I don't consider myself to be religious or spiritual. I think the role of spirituality or religion in my life is, um, it is so prevalent in society and it is such a big part of almost everybody's lives and especially such a big part of politics because it makes people so emotional that, you know, politicians use this to rev them up and like... Uh, get their agendas passed that that maybe is a too cynical way of looking at it but um it's so prevalent that like i i study it it's it's something that i find fascinating um but i but i'm not a i'm not a religious person and i, and I don't i don't think of i i don't think god is real i don't think that there is a um consciousness to the universe that has particular desires or thoughts about me i i i just don't I don't think about that stuff. I, I do think about it. I just, there, I I just don't think it's true. And that's not to say I think the 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 classic sort of, um, critique of this position is like, oh, well, you think you know everything, and the uh, um, mm-hmm. what I what I've heard from especially Christian friends is, well, you know, if you, there's there's only one step from thinking that there is no God to thinking that you are God, and that is um that is not true um. I'm simply comfortable with the fact that there are things in the universe that I do not understand and are beyond my comprehension. And that's kind of it. So, uh, you know, I don't think that when I die, Jesus is going to explain everything to me because I think if he could explain everything to me, you know, if if the universe were simple enough for us to understand, it wouldn't be able to generate life complex enough to understand itself. Um, So I don't. So yeah, that's that's really, that's pretty much my position. So the role of spirituality and religion in my life is that, like everybody, I have to deal with the fact that it is a big part of everyone else's life, but it is not a big part of my life. It is only a big part of my life in that I run up against it and end up talking about it with a lot of people for whom it is very important. Some people that I care about for whom it's important. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And I'm also not religious myself. So you don't have to like stress about offending me or whatever. So you're
1: good. <laughs> so I listened to the episode with Evan Knox of yeah. uh, Bit Depth, who which I loved. And he was fascinating. I actually now follow him on social media. Um, <laughs> and your questions were great. And his take on, uh, I thought his take on Christianity was was brilliant and beautiful. And like it works for him and it's a central part of his life. And I think that's fantastic. I So I don't. I guess the reason I'm arguing with myself a little bit is I don't begrudge (laughs) anyone their spirituality. And I I don't Mm. think, you know, to the extent that it doesn't cause them to do things that are crazy and antisocial, I don't begrudge them, their beliefs at all. And one of the great things about your podcast and the um, thing that I learned from listening to uh, this, the Evan Knox episode was that as he was like explaining his spirituality and his Christianity, I found myself wanting to like interject and argue with him. <laughs> Cause if I was in a conversation with him, that's exactly what I would have done. I would have said like, Hey, this point that you made, you know, doesn't hold water. And then I realized that like, I realized that, you know, first of all, it's a podcast and he can't hear me. So I just had to listen to him. <laughs> and what I learned from that was that it was that it was definitely more interesting and a better conversation and a better experience to just listen. And mm. that, everything that he had to say about his faith and the way that it like buoys his life and leads him to do the things that he does was brilliant and beautiful beautiful and well-articulated and totally consistent with with living what I consider to be a good life. And um, so hearing someone express that in a situation where there's no room for rhetoric because there's no room for arguing really... Uh, was powerful to me. I like. I learned something by listening to someone with whom I guess I philosophically disagree with. I realized that we don't actually philosophically disagree that much. So exactly. <laughs> so good job. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
0: So with that, what is your definition of God?
1: My definition of God is a um, a fictional character that people believe in to um, explain the universe. I, I guess there's there's probably a better definition than that. But um, it's a, I mean, mythology is used to explain things that um, that people can't explain and has been for forever. So uh, and and it's it's also used to pass on knowledge. There's um, so yeah, I, I think of my definition of God is let's try, let me try and expand the question because I Uh, The way I'm trying to answer it is what is my, like, I'm thinking of God with a capital G. But, um, Mm -hmm. and that's a pointless thing for me to define because I've already said that it's not something I believe in. So, uh, but to, to say my, um, like, I do believe there is something higher. So I guess my definition of God would be the knowledge that my understanding has limits. So yeah. my definition of God is, yes, that, that I believe that my understanding has limits that I will not be able to overcome and that there is information beyond those limits that I just don't have access to. So I, I don't find that concept to be—so so, there, so there's no big G God in that concept, but there is a admission and a comfort with the fact that I don't know everything and I can't know everything. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I like that a lot. And that's exactly where I'm going. (laughs) That's like the, the point of that question. (laughs) What is free will and do you believe in it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think implicit in everything I've said is that I believe we're just, you know, hairless monkeys running around doing whatever (laughs) we think is a good idea at the time. So, um, yeah, man. You know, what's funny is as I listen to other episodes of your podcast, I hear people stumbling on these questions. And I was like, I'm not gonna I'm gonna be fluid and articulate. <laughs> and even though I know the questions, I'm d- d- doing the exact same thing that everyone else does, which is uh, inspiring and actually kind of cool. Um, so I suppose that to, to a certain degree, I mean, I think the the perception of free will is really all that matters. If you think you're acting um out of your own free will than you are. There's a certain level of biological determinism to decisions that everybody makes. Um, There is a certain level of... uh, um, I mean, there there are some decisions that are made entirely hormonally. You know, if you catch someone in a bad mood and ask them a question, they might give you an answer that's different than if you caught them at a different time. And it's, uh, you know, this falls into the category of... um, you know, data sets that I just can't comprehend. I mean, they're probably... uh, Yeah, I guess I don't really believe in Laplace's demon. It's an interesting idea, but... Uh, which is, the, the, for the listeners who aren't familiar, it's the idea that if you could just know the position and velocity and direction of every particle in the universe, you could predict everything. Um, mm. And that, like, of course, that's a lot of... That's more data than you can ever assemble, we think, Um, but if you could, if you just knew where everything was and where everything was headed, you could literally predict every thing, which would mean that there was no free will because it was all predictable by physics. Um, and that doesn't seem to me to be, uh, possible, but I don't know, maybe it is. Um, but again, I think that Hmm. would be incomprehensible to us. Like, I think it's like the, um, like the computer in, uh, Why can't I think of the name of the book? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, it's like Douglas Adams computers, you know, the the answer to life, the universe and everything is 42. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's an answer. We just, we can't, we don't understand it. So um, what do I think of free will? Yeah, I don't know. I I don't, I guess I don't think about free will that much.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And that's fine. Uh, What do you think happens when
1: you, when we die? Probably the same thing that happened before we were born.
0: Hmm. That's pretty much, that's,
1: I mean, I don't have a, I don't have more of an answer than that. Nobody, (laughs) anybody who tells you that they do is selling you something.
0: Yeah. (laughs) How do you determine what good behavior
1: is? Well, I have, I have uh, a lot of occasion to think about this because I have two sons now. So, um, I not only have to model good behavior for them, but I have to explain good behavior to them. Um, and one of the one of the rubrics that I use for that is um, when you're contemplating an action, think about if everybody did this all the time, would it be okay and mm-hmm. um, in the case of say throwing trash on the ground no, that would be horrible. We would live in you know a disgusting garbage dump um, but if everybody uh, y- yeah so I mean that's I think that's a good that's a good way to um to think about like, is one of, is an action that I'm taking that is maybe ambiguously, um, you you know, is in any, is in any area of ambiguity, like, is this okay? If everybody did it, like if the guy right next to me did it, would that be fine? And if the answer is yes, then you're probably good to do it. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, you know, there, there are, there is obviously a lot to learn from the great wisdom traditions. And a lot of them boil down to, um, treat others as you would like to be treated. And I think that's a very simple rule that is difficult to live by, but will really never lead you astray. Um, so I, I try to, I try to live by that. And that may, that, that makes it very simple. I mean, I, I just, if you think about as you're interacting with someone, is, is this how I would want someone to interact with me? If you, if you can have the presence of mind to stop and think about that, it will your interactions will be very positive um because most people want to be treated with respect and with dignity and they want to be listened to and they want to be thought about and considered and to know that you know you see them in the vast universe and i think if you treat everybody like as if they're a special piece of humanity then then you're going to be you're going to be in great shape yeah <laughs> yeah.
0: And for my philosophy nerd friends, the first thing that you said is uh, Immanuel mm. Kant's categorical imperative: the uh, mm-hmm. if everyone did a thing, then. Uh, but yeah, there's a name for that. <laughs> uh, yeah. How do we reduce the division?
1: What what division? The the
0: question usually has a political context because of the world that. Uh, or at least the country that we're living in right now. But uh, it kind of does go farther down, I suppose. But right now it seems to be a political division. But it, I think after years of asking this question, it seems to be like, why is it so hard for people to care about each other?
1: <laughs> huh. Um. Why is it so hard for people to care about each other? Yeah. So this is uh well, this is a great question. So my father-in-law is lives in Arizona, has lived in the Midwest his entire life, except for the several months that he moved to Simi Valley to um be here while we uh raised our while we had our first child. Um, and he's a hardcore Trump supporter and, you know, goes through bouts of watching Fox News 10 hours a day. Uh, and, and now doesn't, I don't know if you've noticed this, but pretty much every conservative I've ever talked to, or at least argued with, will not admit to watching Fox News. But somebody's watching Fox <laughs> News. I don't know who, but you know, it's it's not me. But anyway, um, and, <clears throat> you know, he and I are, uh, he and I, like, I'm not a Trump supporter. Um, and I'm probably, I'm probably right of most of my Californian compatriots. Um, but, uh, you know, in any other state, I would be considered a communist. Um, and so, but one of the things that I've learned from arguing, and, and my father-in-law is a great, uh, he's gr- he's a great arguer. And he's like, he's great <laughs> with rhetoric. He's great. He's quick on his feet. And he, and so we have a lot of fun. Uh, my My wife and his wife do not understand why we because you know we yell at each other, but we both enjoy it um, <laughs> and yeah, um the thing that I've learned, probably the the greatest thing the biggest thing that I've learned from him and from talking to him is that our political um enemies, if you will, are complete caricatures, you know, and there is basically no one like if you're sitting there right now getting dressed to go to a black lives matter. Uh, protest and like protest police violence, um, you know, good on you and God bless you. But like, you should know that <clears throat> the people on the other side that you're protesting against don't want to like murder black people in the streets. Like that is not their goal, you know, and um, th- that doesn't, that doesn't mean that that's not what's happening, but that that's not their goal. There's no one who wakes up in the morning and thinks, I want to be evil. Everybody is trying to do what they think is the best thing for the country and, um, there's a lot of money to be made in media in riling people up and getting them to be emotional about an issue. Because when you're emotional, you scroll and you watch and you click and you interact and you comment. And so while if you were to um, sit down with a Trump supporter, if you're not a Trump supporter, you would very quickly find a lot of common ground with them. Um, That common ground would not include thinking Donald Trump was awesome, but politically and as far as um, what, uh, you know, what a good direction for the country is, you would find a a ton of common ground. That makes for terrible television, Um, you know, and so the um, so I think the way that we reduce division is simply to talk to each other, like talk to your enemies, find a person that you think you could not possibly have any common ground with this with and just ask them a question and listen to what they have to say. Uh, I don't know how scalable that is, you know, but if, um, if more people do it, we will, we will be less divided and the, to just have a, I mean, if you look at the media landscape today, it is, it is designed to divide people by categories, you know, by um, ideological categories. And there are all sorts of, um, there are ideological purity tests on, on every side. And there are, um, there are, uh, there's virtue, virtue signaling on every side, you know, and like when I, when I look at, you know, Twitter and I see someone who has a profile that has a bunch of American flags and a cross and, you know, you know, make America great again and a picture of Trump. And then I see someone who has a, you know, a black tile and, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter everywhere and, um, pictures of, uh, George Floyd, like those two profiles are both doing the same thing. They're both virtue signaling. They're just virtue signaling to different people and, um, or to different, to different groups. And, but what that means to me is that they're both trying to be good in the context that they think is reality. (laughs) So, um, and the, you know, the, um, the, the reality of our, um, of our political life right now is that it's it's hard to look at the other side and to look at people who disagree with you politically and be sympathetic to them. And it's hard to hear what they're saying, even if they're saying it clearly, because they're mischaracterized, you know, their pundits are mischaracterizing what you're saying. Your pundits are mischaracterizing what they're saying. Um, but I, I can almost guarantee that if a Black Lives Matter activists sat down with a Proud Boy and had a beer or a cup of coffee or a soy latte, they would probably both get up from the conversation thinking like, oh, yeah, we're more or less, we're like 10 degrees apart on a couple of things. And we are well within the realm of compromise on basically everything. Um, And, you know, that's not true of everyone. There are, you know, there are fire breathing media savvy caricatures, you know, of these of these, um, of these positions. And that's what we see, but most people aren't that. And for most people, politics is not the most important thing in their life, you know? So they, they would, they're, they're happy to compromise just to move on. But, um, this was a good question because I could talk about this for a long time, but uh, I think I'll stop here. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, that's really good. Uh, I think this episode is going to run a little long and that's okay.
1: <laughs> Do you believe that humans are evil by nature? Uh, I I think in my last answer, I I, I don't think there is really such a thing as evil. Um, Mm -hmm. So, no, I don't believe humans are evil by nature. I think evil and good are concepts that we've invented to describe feelings. And that's all they are. There's, you know, is is, is it evil for a cheetah to eat a gazelle? Or is it evil for a cheetah to starve? To death. Um, I mean, it depends whether you're the cheetah or the gazelle. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, on the one hand, evil in the in the world um, that is unaffected by thought is 100% relative. Evil in the world with thought and feelings and human cognition is uh, can be avoided by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. So, yeah. I think it's that simple. Cool.
0: <laughs> what do you think humanity is heading towards in the future?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Man, mm-hmm. I think there's, uh, it depends on like which sci fi book I've most recently read, right? Um, <laughs> actually, that's not true because every sci fi book or movie, no matter how dark and uh, a dystopia it starts in, ends with the redemption of humanity, except maybe Mad Max. Okay. Um, but, uh, but the, you know, I just finished reading the broken earth trilogy and K Jemison, uh, and mm-hmm. it's, uh, uh, also spoilers for anyone who hasn't read it. There's going to be spoilers in the next few things I'm going to say. So like skip ahead a minute. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it starts with, um, human beings are like scattered across the earth in this apocalypse. It's just a mm-hmm. apocalypse that happened so long ago. Nobody even remembers what happened. And, uh, ultimately, um, it is, uh, it's it's ultimately resolved. Like it, 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 was, it was thousands of generations ago that this thing happened. But, um, you know, through seeds that were planted then by people who were doing the right thing, then thousands, 10s of 1000s of years later, the situation is resolved and humanity is able to get back on its feet. And that is the story that we tell ourselves about what it means to be human that, you know, we're always striving towards greatness. And we're always trying to be better, and that we will solve any problem that comes our way. And to some degree, I believe that. To some degree, I don't. And Mm -hmm. I think really, with my take on, you know, hand in hand with my take on spirituality, my, my only, my only role in this is to do the best that I can. And, you know, to maybe try to help other people do the best that they can. But having a but I don't know where humanity is headed. I think there are a lot of troubling um, signs in our midst, and there are a lot of really inspiring signs in our midst also. And we tend to basically do a coin flip whenever we get to a big crossroads. Like often it works out, sometimes and often it doesn't, and uh, it seems to be about 50 So I don't. So I don't know. I I, I hope that we're uh, I my biggest fear for humanity is that we're going to destroy ourselves with nuclear weapons still that's still my biggest fear um that is present it is you know it j- just because it's possible you know we we do have a tendency as a species to do whatever is possible so yeah <laughs> um that is possible and i hope we decide not to do it the capability of being able to destroy ourselves is new um in it's is yeah relatively and i mean in a geological or even just sort of the history of humanity sense it's extremely new um and and it's dangerous and i think we also are heading in a direction technologically where we are um where we're moving towards the ability to enslave ourselves as well uh Mm. in in a way that's different than chattel slavery uh and, and probably better than chattel slavery, but slavery nonetheless.
0: <laughs> yeah. So again, to get away from the darkness of that, what are you optimistic about for our future?
1: Well, we have never had better tools for finding stuff out, which seems to be the thing that is um, the most important to us as a species. Um, history, I think, is really divided into two main narratives. Um, One of them is the narrative of war. And, you know, history is basically the history of warfare and the history of um, leaders of warfare, and which we refer to as the histories of nations. Um, But then the other side of history is uh, philosophy and the history of, um, you know, epistemology and the history of knowledge. And we've never been in a better, these are two things that human beings are passionate about, um, fighting for power and fighting for information. And Sometimes they're the same thing, uh, but we've never been in a better position to find things out because we've never been more connected. Um, you know, I, j- just the to to sort of borrow a Yuval Noah Harari analogy, um, uh, we, part of our nature is similar to the nature of bees in that we're extremely collective, right? We're we're able mm-hmm. to behave collectively. Um, but as he put it, the uh, the bees can't organize and overthrow the queen and declare a bee republic. Um, so that is um, where we uh, where we differ. And so, if you think of humanity as like a bunch of beehives throughout the world in history, and for a long time, only the ones that were close to each other were able to interact. And now, um, and even up until you know fifty or sixty years ago, that was true. You could communicate with with everyone in the world, you know, as in the, basically in the 20th century, it was possible, but the level of connection that we have now is, is huge. I mean, it's, it's amazingly, it's, I, I, I don't think I need to explain it. Um, everybody, everybody who's listening to this podcast is currently participating in that intense level of connection. Um, and the fact that all of that communication is recorded and can be mined for data is partly what I mean by I think we're heading towards our own enslavement or possibly heading towards our own enslavement, but it's also an incredible, incredible resource um, to understand human speech and human emotions and human communication and human thought patterns and to be able to understand how humans behave over time. We've we've just never had this and it's, it's so new that it's hard to know where it's going to lead, but it's definitely going to lead. It already has led to many, many interesting discoveries and it will certainly lead to more. I wish I could live like 300 years to see, to read the books about this period that are written with some perspective, because it's an amazing yeah. time that we're living through.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: <laughs> what makes you content? Um, that's a good question. You know, what's funny mm-hmm. is like, I knew these, these are the same questions that you ask everyone. <laughs> and or Maybe they're not <laughs> the same questions you ask everyone, but like, I knew this question was coming. I should have thought about it. Um, and uh, I did think about it. And I didn't, I guess I didn't come up with anything. I mean, I, I feel content. Like what we're doing now is one of the things that makes me feel content. I like connecting with people and talking about ideas. Um, I like reading and learning about ideas. I like creating music with other people. I think interacting with other people makes me content. Yeah. I'm like interacting (laughs) with, in a meaningful way with other people makes me content. And, uh, yeah, um, and I guess content is different than happy, right? Um, yes, but yeah, I think like connection for me is contentedness.
0: Awesome. <laughs> when will you be satisfied?
1: I'm satisfied right now. Beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I one of the one of the things I realized in my 20s was that I'm I'm a pretty optimistic person. And every day there's like something new every day there's something new and awesome and I feel like every day is kind of the best day of my life so um <laughs> yesterday was a really good day and today is uh is so far even better even though it's it's not even nine o'clock where i am so <laughs> so yeah i think i'm i think i'm uh I think I'm pretty happy and um I think I'm pretty satisfied most of the time but you know on the other hand I'm an American I live in a materialistic culture and you know, I don't yet have a Tesla, but you know, having a Tesla is not going to make me satisfied. It's just going to make me drive faster
0: and spend less money on gas. I guess. But
1: <laughs> <laughs> what
0: advice do you have for people in general?
1: <laughs> I I don't I don't know if I'm qualified to give people general advice. You know, do <laughs> one to others as you would have them do unto you. Um, I, I could. There are any number of platitudes, but I, I don't have a, I, I think advice really should be specific. So here, I'll give people general advice. If you would like to know anything that I know, or you would like my take on anything, I am super easy. My name is Lucas Cantor. You can Google (laughs) me and find me and you can get my Instagram or my email immediately. Just ask me a question and I will be happy to answer it. So I think, uh, yeah, probably the best advice I could give To like just a general person is if you want to know someone or you want to talk to someone, you live in an age where you can reach out to them and find them and almost everyone will talk to you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Lastly, potentially most importantly, cake or pie.
1: So I actually have the same answer. Um, I'll I'll give you a really long answer to this question. I'm just kidding. No, the, uh, (laughs) the answer is Toll House cookie pie. The one and only Can't. answer is Toll House cookie pie. It's exactly what it sounds like. It is a crust with a cookie in it, and you got to serve it with vanilla ice cream, and it has to be warm, and they have to be Toll House chocolate chips. And there's nothing better in the world. <laughs> That's amazing. I want to tell you probably the most important thing about my life, which is that um, <laughs> my wife has celiac disease, and which means that she is not allowed to eat gluten, and she gets really sick if she does. And it means that we can't have any gluten in our house. So I love her so much that I've given up Tollhouse cookie pie for life. So there it is. I guess I can have it at a restaurant (laughs) if she's not around, but I can't have it in my house.
0: Yeah. (laughs) That is the sacrifices that we make for love.
1: (laughs) Yep. Uh, Lucas, thank you so much for doing this with me. Where can we find you and your things? So I'm easily findable on my website, lucascantormusic.com. I just stumbled over the name of my own website, but it's just my name, music.com. And lucasdcantor on Instagram. So those are the two best places to reach me. Um, And uh, seriously, if uh, you have any listeners who are uh, musicians or aspiring composers, like I'm always happy to answer questions and just, you know, just hit me up.
0: Yeah, Definitely which I'm about to do on the second podcast. So. <laughs> Yay. Uh, but yeah, no, the, thank you so much for doing this with me. I'm Santiago Ramones. I'm Lucas Cantor. You can find everything that I do on my website, SantiagoRamones.com. I make music. Bloom is available now, streaming everywhere. Put it on in the background or show it to your friends so you can all enjoy it together. You can also buy it on Bandcamp and get bonus content so you can sit alone in the dark with your headphones on and listen to the album in its entirety while reading and looking at the bonus content. I also make music with Power Cycle, an experimental electronic trio. Our first completely improvised album, Too Many Damn Cables, is streaming everywhere. To support this podcast, leave reviews, comments, tell your friends about it, and buy my music, because by supporting me, you're supporting the podcast. I always end the podcast with my three things. They shape my life philosophy. Those three things are love never fails. It's going to be okay. I might be wrong.